welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and I am coming to you from a country that really feels like it's slowly sliding into a second civil war. We've got federal troops in camouflage uniforms without insignia attacking peaceful protesters in Portland, Oregon, and these protests are now spreading across the country. Now there are some, you know, some people who are actually trying to fight against these federal troops, but it's very clear that Trump is doing this as a political stunt. He's using coverage of these clashes in his own campaign ads so he can appear as some kind of law and order candidate. If you go on the Fox News website, all they're talking about is the far-left anarchists and anti-fascists that are smashing up federal property in American cities, largely with Democratic mayors and largely, perhaps not surprisingly, with African-American populations that are significant. You know, it's really disgusting to watch. It is very disheartening to see. Uh, There was actually a really interesting op-ed in the New York Times by former director of the Homeland Security Department, which is the, the department that's actually providing these federal troops for these democratic cities, you know, calling on the Trump administration to stop what it's doing. It's making things much worse. People are getting angry and there's such a deep divide in this country. The pandemic is raging. So many people are dying. I just read that in Texas, funeral homes basically can't keep up with the number of dead bodies that are accumulating. They're buying refrigerated trucks, just like had happened earlier this year in New York. And of course, this is because Republican governor of Texas not only refused to shut down the economy because he wanted it to open up as soon as possible in April, but then actually tried to prevent local mayors who were trying to mandate the wearing of masks. It's just so hard, I think, to sit by and, and watch what's happening in this country. It's it's really, really difficult, especially for somebody like me who pays attention to politics and has a lot to say on various subjects. I just think, you know, when you see the wall of moms, these women who are locking arms, trying to stand between the protesters and the federal troops in Oregon, it makes me very much think of the mothers of the disappeared, the women in black, you know, in Argentina during the military dictatorship who would go with pictures of their disappeared relatives in front of the Casa Rosada and and just stand there um, bearing witness to the violence of the fascist, you know, military regime there. And I feel like, you know, this wall of moms, I mean, they're being attacked just as much as um, the other protesters, even though they're obviously not violent anarchists. They're a bunch of middle-aged women. It's crazy. Uh, But I will say that I think it's interesting that the wall of moms in Portland is using maternity, using their role as mothers, the, the same way, as I said, that the mothers of the disappeared in Argentina once used the same kind of Marianismo, it's called in, in Latin America, kind of this like cult of motherhood, cult of Mother Mary. And it's a way of signaling to the world, 
I think that women have this incredible power by virtue of the fact that they they either are or they can be, I suppose, mothers. Now, I know a lot of feminists will disagree with this tactic because, of course, it essentializes it essentializes women in some ways. It reduces women to their reproductive roles, and there have been long debates about this within various, you know, feminist circles. But I do think that it is really interesting that when you have right-wing, somewhat fascistic political forces attacking peaceful protesters or disappearing citizens, as they have done in, in Portland, putting people into unmarked vans and whisking them away, attacking veterans and using tear gas and pepper spray and rubber bullets and all of these kind of very violent, repressive measures against American citizens who are quite frankly, using their constitutional right to assemble, to to protest the, the direction that our country has taken. I think it's really, it's a moment that we should, where we should all be paying attention. And it's also a moment to sort of reflect on the gender politics of this and Trump trying to be this big, strong man running as this law and order candidate. And these, these moms, right, in their, in their yellow t-shirts, standing up and trying to protect the protesters from these federal troops and what it means when women take to the streets in this particular way. I think it's really interesting. We think about the Russian Revo- the first Russian revolution in February, 1917, and how it was sparked off by women who are out in the streets demanding bread. We can go back to the, the French revolution and think about women as well, storming Versailles. There are so many interesting historical moments when women, ordinary women, but particularly sort of middle-aged women who are more likely to stay at home, more likely to not be radicalized and more likely to try to calm situations like this, finally get fed up and they go out in the streets and they use their identities as mothers, as some kind of cultural capital to speak up against power. I think that's incredibly powerful. And I also think it's something that Alexandra Kollontai would very, very much agree with. Because of course, for her, this idea of motherhood was really important. It required, you know, extra resources from the state in order to ensure that women had equity with men. And it was a kind of strategic tool that gave leftist women a sort of powerful platform from which to argue that they are, in many ways, the people who socially reproduce the nation. And so they have a very important stake in protecting the citizens. So for those of you not in the United States, if you're, you know, watching what's happening from abroad, I can, I can tell you it's, it's pretty, it must be awful looking. It must be appalling, quite frankly. Um, it is. <laughs> I think it really is. I don't think there's any question that for many of us who are here right now, largely because we cannot leave, nobody wants to take us anymore because of the coronavirus, we are really standing by and, and looking out at what's happening in horror. I mean, quite a few of us are out in the streets. Quite a few of us are writing and, and, and agitating and thinking about these problems. But this is also, you know, a, a, a government. The, the Trump administration is made it very clear that because he's falling so far behind in the polls, he wants to 
create havoc in the United States. He wants to brutalize American citizens in order to increase his election chances later this year. And I think that's just absolutely despicable. I also see it as incredibly authoritarian, and I am no longer in any doubt that the Republican Party and the Trump administration are leading our country down the road to fascism. There is absolutely no doubt about that any longer. When the military is clearing peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square so Trump can have a photo opportunity in front of a church to pander to his base, when it's very clear that federal troops are being deployed and and putting themselves at risk as well as the lives of the protesters at risk so that Trump can create this fantasy that he's a law and order president. I mean, imagine that you create a problem so that you can pretend to solve it as an election stunt. This is absolutely unacceptable. And I hope that all of you listening will understand the justifiable outrage that many of us Americans are feeling at this particular historical moment. All right. Well, I did not quite intend to go on a rant um, as I just did. Uh, And I've now cut into my ability to read from chapter five of Alexandra Kolontai's Red Love. So I'm just going to read a portion of chapter five and I will pick up and continue to read in the next episode. Sorry about that, but I think sometimes it's really important to just express frustration and anger and outrage at what's happening in this country and and, and quite frankly around the world. It's not only the United States where these kinds of right-wing authoritarian leaders are trying to take hold, but, but everywhere. And this is the time when we must be vigilant and we must find solidarity no matter how many differences we have on the left. I, you know, I, I find it really disheartening sometimes when I hear leftists disagreeing with each other over finer points of doctrine. I think, you know, it's very clear that we this is the time for the, the popular front. This is the time for us to unite and link arms like those moms, that wall of moms in front of uh, in front of the protesters. And also I think it's important, hey, let's give a shout out to the wall of dads who are who are out there and, and, and the veterans who are out there and all of the protesters who are out there putting their lives on the line. So without further ado, this is section one of chapter five of Alexandra Kollontai's Red Love. Early that morning, a red guard brought her a note from Volonia. Vasya, my wife, my beloved comrade, I don't care about the case against me now. Let them ruin me. Only one thought torments me, maddens me, that I might lose you. I can't live without you, Vasya. You must know that. If you no longer love me, make no efforts in my behalf. Let them shoot me. Yours, only yours, Volodya. And on the side, diagonally, I love only you, whether you believe me or not, and I will insist on it until I die. Another sentence in a corner. I've never reproached you with your past. Try to understand and forgive me now. Yours with all my heart and soul. Basia read the note over and over and felt happier. He was right. He had never reproached her that she had not been a virgin. After all, men were like that. What could he do when that hussy threw herself on his neck? Act like a monk? She read the note again, kissed it, folded it carefully, and put it in her pocket. And now to get busy, to get Volodya out of trouble. 
She wore herself out, rushing from pillar to post, growing excited, running afoul of bureaucracy, and in the indifference of men, giving up, losing all hope. Then, summoning all her strength, she began to fight with renewed courage. She would not permit the triumph of the wrong. She would not let those scheming slanderers hurt Volodya. She gained her most important point. Comrade Toporkov took the matter in his own hands, and after looking into it, he made the following decision. As the charges are groundless, the case is to be dropped. The next morning, Vasya could not leave her bed. She had contracted typhus. In the evening, she recognized no one, not even Volodya, when he returned. In her memory, Vasya's illness seemed a half-dream. It was night when she regained consciousness. She looked about, an unfamiliar room, medicine bottles on the table, a nurse with a white neckerchief sitting beside her bed. Wiry, no longer young, a severe expression on her face. As Vasya looked at her, it bothered her to see a nurse sitting there. The white kerchief irritated her. Why? She hardly knew herself. Would you like a drink? Leaning forward, the nurse held a glass to Vasya's lips. Vasya drank and lost consciousness again. Vaguely, as in a dream, she felt Volodya bending over her and adjusting her pillow. She became entirely unconscious. She had a dream. Perhaps it was real? There were two shadows in the room. No, not shadows. Women, but not real women. One white, one gray, turning, twisting, their arms entwining. Not a dance, but a struggle. And now Vasya understood. Life and death had come to her and were fighting for her. Which would win? Vasya was frightened, so frightened that she wanted to scream, but she could not utter a sound. This frightened her even more. Her heartbeat pounded as though it would burst any moment. Ping, 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 there was shooting on the street. She opened her eyes. In the feeble light of the night lamp, she saw that she was alone. It was night. She listened. A scratching mice, as if they were rolling something under the floor, ever nearer, ever closer. And now Vasya was torn with a new fear. She felt that the mice were trying to get on her bed, on her, and she would not be able to drive them away. Beginning to cry, she called feebly, Volodya, 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 Vasya, darling, my little sweetheart, what's the matter? Volodya was bending over her, anxiously peering into her eyes. Volodya, are you alive, really? Her strengthless hand felt about Volodya's head. I'm alive. We're both alive, my dearest. Why are you crying? What's the matter with my basyuk? Were you dreaming? Are you delirious again? Tenderly, he kissed her hands and stroked her damp, short hair. No, no, I wasn't dreaming. The mice were scratching so. She defended herself with a faint smile. The mice, Volodya laughed. My Vasyuk has become so brave that she's afraid of mice. I told the nurse that you shouldn't be left here alone. It's good that I came home just now. Vasya would have liked to ask him where he had been, but she was so weak that she couldn't talk. A delicious weakness, however, a sort of drowsiness, and the nicest part of it all was his sitting beside her. She held his hand in her feeble grasp, would not let go. Her lips were smiling, and she whispered, He's alive. Of course I'm alive, laughed that Amir. Gently, he kissed her forehead. Vasya opened her eyes. But what happened to my hair? Did they cut it off? 
That's nothing. Don't worry about that. Now you're a real boy, a real Basyuk. Basya smiled. She was happy. Volodya did not leave her. As she dozed, he sat on the chair beside her and watched over her sleep. Sleep, Vasya, sleep. You mustn't look at me with your big eyes. You'll have plenty of time to look at me when you're well again. If you don't sleep now, you'll be sick again, and the doctor will scold me. He'll tell me I'm a poor nurse. You won't go away? Where would I go? I sleep here every night on the floor beside you. I'm less worried when I'm able to see you. In the daytime, I'm working hard. Working? In the commissariat? Yes, indeed. Everything's all right again. Those rogues have been arrested. But you're not to talk, you impossible Vasyuk. Sleep. If you don't go to sleep, I will go away. Her helpless fingers tightened their hold on his hand. But she closed her eyes quite submissively. It was so wonderful, so sweet to fall asleep with Volodya sitting beside her, looking at her so anxiously and tenderly. My darling, you must sleep, you bad, bad, naughty boy. I'm asleep, but I love you. Volodya bent over her and kissed her eyelids, long, very gently, and tenderly. And Vasya would have wept with joy. She was willing to die right there and then. No greater happiness could ever be hers. And now there's a break in the story, and she's back on the train thinking about the past. The memory of what she had felt then made Vasya start. Was such a thing impossible now? Had her heart been right when it told her that she could never know greater happiness? And now that joy, that happiness would be no more. She was going to him, to her beloved. He had asked for her, was waiting for her. He had sent a comrade to tell her to hurry, and he had sent her money for the trip and a dress, so he must love her. Why, then, would she never be so happy again? Vasya wanted so much to believe in her happiness, but doubt rankled in her breast. She had no real faith. Vasya again thought of the past. They had parted quite suddenly that time. The front was shifted. When Vladimir went away, Vasya was still so weak that she could hardly walk. They parted on the best of terms. The nurse was not mentioned again. Vasya had come to understand that the nurse meant no more to him than a glass of whiskey. You drink it and it's forgotten. Vasya had gone back home and immediately returned to her work. At the time, she believed that everything was as it had been, that everything was all right again. Now Vasya remembered that even then there had been a load on her heart. Something, somewhere, was raising its head. Was it bitterness because of the red-lipped nurse, or was it suspicion? Yet Vasya loved Volodya. The fear they had shared and her illness had bound them even closer. They had loved each other before, too, but they had not felt so near to each other. Now, after the distress they had gone through together, their hearts were more united. Still, Vasya could no longer find the joy of a bright spring morning in her love. It had become gloomier, overcast with clouds. Yet it had grown deeper and stronger. Besides, how could one have been in the mood for love and joy? There were the fronts, the partings, the conspiracies, the mobilization of the communists. They were threatened from all sides, were head over heels in work. Working in the housing bureau of the Soviet, Vasya had to take care of the refugees. It was there that she developed her idea of organizing a community house to conform with her views. Alexievich had helped her with word and deed. 
and Vasya had plunged into her work. She lived thus for months. Of course, she thought of Vladimir, always had him in her heart, but she did not have time to yearn for him, and he too had his work. Everything seemed to be running along smoothly. He had stopped trying to show off so much and was at peace with the executive. Suddenly, he surprised Vasya in her attic, quite unexpectedly. He had been wounded in a skirmish during the retreat, nothing dangerous, but he needed a rest. He was given leave, and he had come to board with his wife. Vasya was glad, yet she could not help thinking, why just now? Could it not have been two months before or a month later? Vasya was so worried just then and overwhelmed with work. A Congress was in session at the moment, and the Housing Bureau was being reorganized. She was fighting for her community house. Impossible to tell when the work would be finished. She had almost had to tear herself in two, and now Volodya was there, wounded in need of care. How could she manage? Troubled, she could not be really happy. Vladimir, however, was delighted as a child. He had brought her a pair of shoes, keeping the promise he had made on her first day in his house. Put them on, Vasya. I want to see how your little doll's feet look in them. Vasilisa had no time. There was a meeting at the housing bureau. She did not want to hurt Vladimir. She put them on and felt like she saw her feet for the first time. They really looked like a doll's. Radiant with joy, she looked at Volodya. She even forgot to thank him. I want so much to pick you up, Vasyutka, but I can't on account of my hand. I love your little feet and your brown eyes. Vladimir was content, excited, and happy. He talked and joked. But Vasya, who should have been at the meeting long before, listened only half-heartedly. She glanced at the alarm clock beside the little mirror on her dresser. The minutes were slipping away. They were waiting for her at the meeting. They would be angry. She was keeping everybody waiting, and it wasn't proper for the chairman to be late. Vasilisa came back home late towards evening. She was tired. There had been unpleasant incidents. She was worried. Climbing the stairs to her attic, she thought, it's nice, after all, to have Volodya there. I'll talk over my troubles with him. But when she entered the room, Volodya wasn't there. Where might he be? His cap was there. His coat was hanging in its proper place. He had probably gone out for a moment. She cleaned up the room and put the tea kettle on the petroleum burner. But Volodya did not come back. Where could he be? She went out into the hall. He was not in sight. She waited, grew worried. Again, she went into the hall. There was Vladimir coming out of the Fedosiev's apartment. They were laughing, parting like the best of friends. Why had Volodya gone to them? He knew of their duplicity. At last, you've come back, Vasya. Your cage depressed me so. I was ready to hang myself. All alone, the live long day. I was glad to meet Comrade Fedosiev. He took me along with him. Don't have anything to do with them, Volodya. You know they're always scheming. You wouldn't ask me to die of boredom in your cage. Don't run away for the whole day. Then I won't go to the Fedosievs. But I have work to do. I'd be only too glad to come home to you earlier, but I can't. It's impossible. Of course, you're busy. But how did I manage to sit beside you at night when you had typhus? And I used to get away in the daytime, too, to look after you. I came to you on sick leave, Vasya, and I still have some fever. Vasya heard the reproach in his voice. He was offended at her having been away all day, but what could she do? There was the reorganization of her department, the coming Congress. I believe you're not overjoyed to have me here, Vladimir said. 
I didn't think I'd find you like this. How can you say such a thing? I'm not glad. My dearest, my beloved, my sweetheart. She threw herself into his arms. They almost upset the petroleum burner. There, there, and I was ready to think you had stopped loving me, that you might have someone else. You seemed so cold, so indifferent. Even your eyes were strange, not at all tender. I'm so tired, Belogia. I have no energy left. You're my tireless little tomboy. Pressing Vasilisa to him, Vladimir kissed her. All right, so I'll stop there. That is the first part of chapter five. I will read part two in the next episode. I hope you are all safe and healthy. As always, thank you so much for listening and keep up the good fight.